Welcome to the fifth and last episode of our Decarb Districts podcast that explores different aspects of the decarbonization of feeding and cooling in five episodes. My name is Susanne Tull and in this fifth episode we'll talk about the right policy framework for district energy. Our guests are Camila Vachega from utility company Veolia and Greg Gibrail from the EBRD, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Over the past years, district energy has been more and more acknowledged as a solution that can help decarbonize heating and cooling and even the wider energy system. And Camilla and Greg, I'm sure you know the Heat Roadmap Europe studies that recommend that district heating should in Europe should be expanded to cover around 50% of the heat demand by, by 2050. So having this potential in mind, Do you think that we have today the framework in place that we need in order to roll out more district energy? And is the district energy sector today already developing according to this potential? It's imp very important to remind that indeed today we already have a very ambitious legislative framework and our industry and representative of our industry made gigantic progresses in making sure that um, district heating is being taken into consideration and integrated into overall European legislative framework. Just to give an example, before its revision in 2018, the Renewables Directive was purely um, directed at elect electricity market. And only two years ago, we had a revision of a directive that actually introduced specific articles that deal with the district, with the heating sector and the district heating networks in particular. And especially it introduced an obligation for member states to increase by 1.3% of renewable share in heating and cooling annually. And it is translated into obligation to increase by 1% annually the, the share of renewables in district heating starting from 2020. I would say that the second very positive um, sign that we see is regarding the, the recovery plan to um, help us move from the COVID-19 crisis. And the Council of Ministers included in its conclusions a note um, for a need for investment in the energy sector, including district heating. And the third very important um, sign from the EU is the very recent energy sector integration strategy that was um, published only on the 8th of July. So it's very, very fresh. And it highlights the need to make more use of waste heat via district heating networks. And it also very much in the spirit of heat roadmap Europe that you just mentioned, Suzanne, the paper also makes numerous references to the ability of district heating to contribute to the development of smarter and more, much more flexible energy systems. So I would say that we have a very, not only decent, but a very ambitious framework currently at the EU level. But um, in order to answer to your question, whether it's being um, being used to its full potential, I think the answer really lies into how member states are um, translating in, into their um, national energy policies and national energy and climate policies. And I think the situation really differs depending on member states. 
I have a, a better knowledge of two, a good knowledge of two cases, which is Poland and, and France. And I think if you look at their um, national energy and climate plans, you can see the concrete uh, targets and measures that are being um, that are being defined for district heating, which show that those two countries um, are actually really seeing district heating as a viable solution for um, decarbonization of the heating sector. Greg, uh, do you experience the same in the countries where, where you are active, where you're working on district energy? Is there already an ambitious framework today and is the district heating sector already developing in the right direction? From the EU level, I think that the um, it's ambitious. Um, I also very much enjoyed uh, reading and was pleased to see what was said in the sector integration strategy, this recent document that came out. But Yeah, this is all good direction at the EU level, but things need to be embedded at national government level. And in the countries that we work in, which are predominantly Central and Eastern Europe, we need to see that um, that those policies, that they're suitably ambitious and that they recognize, like EU has, like they have at the EU level, that uh, heating is a very big part of their energy mix and their final energy demand in terms of what's consumed as heating or cooling. So in some of these countries that I described, the, um, they have existing, they have large existing uh, district heating systems, but they are relatively inefficient in some cases. There's good examples, of course, in some of the Baltic states where um, there have been reforms and improvements, but we have some other, other countries still within the EU where systems are a bit older and a bit inefficient. And I think in those in those sectors, they need to set the ambitions, but they also need to recognize that they need some different policies there to uh, ensure the growth, the repair of the sector and allow it to live up to its full potential, um, particularly with the way they set their tariffs or they govern the level of setting tariffs. And um, there's also going to be examples some countries where they moved away from the sector in the past or they they don't have much of a sector to begin with really and they're going to need different uh, government policies there or support mechanisms there to give certainty to investors to developers to uh, the different organizations that we work with about the um, certainty to invest due to those high upfront costs developing new networks and systems in those places. And to, to go a bit more into detail here, Greg, you have now already mentioned some of the barriers or challenges for district energy, like high upfront cost or countries where they, they already have a lot of district energy, but they have the challenge of modernizing those networks. So what do you both think are actually the biggest challenges or barriers today to district energy development? In some of those countries that we work in, I would say that there's definitely a problem with the public perception of the sector there. So as things changed, as systems of government changed in the uh, in the 1990s in a place, for example, like um, Romania, we didn't see investment keeping up in the sector and we saw service levels uh, going down. And uh, members of the public um, 
correctly in some cases, they they developed a negative attitude of the sector due to the poor levels of service that they received. So um, one of the some of the biggest challenges there that we see are just with without public support for these systems, there is a lack of political support for them. And unfortunately, we see in some cases their systems closing, which is uh, which is a real shame, a loss of that infrastructure. Or we see these cases where there are systems where you have a mix, where they're losing customers, but still operating, um, trying their best to operate and potentially entering, it sounds dramatic, what we call the death spiral, where their costs remain high, but they're losing customers to alternative solutions. And I mean, some of those alternative solutions across other countries are some of the barriers. So of course, it's, it's probably obvious, probably goes without saying that uh, expanding uh, district heating networks, in particular in areas where there are uh, existing natural gas grids, and this this can be quite a challenge. Uh, there are some vested interests associated with or promotion by, by in some cases by uh, governments or others, or it is just a matter of uh, moving large numbers of individual consumers away from what they believe is a reliable and trusted solution. Other thing, other point I would describe is that we're consumers sticking with the theme of natural gas, where um, consumers have individual heating solutions based on natural gas. It's not really the, the price they're paying for that natural gas doesn't really reflect um, the carbon impacts of it. So I know that different countries have uh, tried with different levels of success to impose forms of taxation on uh, on certainly the electricity electricity sales, but also in some cases natural gas sales. But um, I don't believe I believe the term is internalizing, and I don't think that those carbon costs are truly internalized in the sale of natural gas to consumers who use that for individual heating solutions versus large consumers of natural gas who in the EU they'll certainly be captured under the EU emissions trading system. Is the, is the EBRD also engaging in any activities to, to promote district energy to change perception of people? So in terms of the work that the EBRD does to, um, to promote this in the sector, so we, we engage in a number of activities uh, in addition to the um, uh, lending of funds, obviously our primary role as a bank. But we also want to um, support the modernization of the sector, the transformation of the sector, and we uh, engage in different forms of policy activities or events, formerly physical events, but in uh, in this time some web-based events to highlight uh, new technology and best practices in the sector. To most of them are primarily targeted at stakeholders in the relevant sectors, but uh, we are trying to spread the message of some of our work further. I wanted also to add another potential obstacle that I that I see as important. I would call it the general discourse about the necessary direct electrification of the heating. Mm. Um, so from our point of view, while electrification of different end use sectors may actually integrate and is integrating energy system, it does not in and by itself improve efficiency or trigger more renewables uptake, especially in the heating sector. 
For instance, if you look at um, average EU carbon intensity of electricity in 2017, it was um, at uh, 219.5 gram uh, of CO2 per kilowatt hours, which is the average that varies obviously from country to country and all from hour to hour. And when you look at countries like Poland, this goes up to 670 grams or even Germany, where you have um, average um, carbon intensity of electricity at 400 grams. So based on these figures, you can see that electrification does not equal decarbonization, at least not today and not immediately and does not solve the problem of how we will decarbonize the heating sector. And Heat Roadmap Europe in particular, and we will be probably may do a lot of references to it, um, sees actually increased electrification of heating and cooling as potentially redefining the electricity sector and enumerates key challenges and potential limitations related to electrification since it, it, it is highly unlikely that the electric grid could actually be expanded rapidly enough in Europe over the coming decades to accommodate such a large growth. So the smart sector integration strategy sees that in the residential sector in particular, the share of electricity in heating demand is expected to grow to 40% by 2030 and to 50 to 70% 70 by 2050. So it means that even in 2050, we will still need 50 to 30% of decarbonized heat coming from other sources that um, electricity. And I think the, um, the sector integration strategy does a great job by showing that we can do both electrification and we can invest in solutions such as um, district heating on a massive scale, which will integrate sources that would otherwise be um, lost, such as, for example, uh, waste heat. But the reason I mention is, I mean, mention this um, specific uh, factor is because we see that this is pretty much a dominant discourse and uh, its electrification is being presented as a panacea to, um, to the issue of carbon intensity in, in the building sector. And I think we will have another illustration on that. And we're already witnessing it prior to the publication of the renovation wave. And the challenge for the sector and, the, um, and I think obstacle is to make sure that we are being considered on the, equal, on the equal footing as electrification when new buildings are being constructed and new neighborhoods are being constructed and expanded and when we massively renovate um, European cities. I think, Camila, you're touching here upon a, a very important point. And can I ask you, do you have any suggestions as to how this discourse about electrification could be changed or, or any, let's say, wish for, for some policy measures or instruments that could actually support sector inter integration? I think more of, a, I would say there are two, two aspects to that. They are measures that can be implemented to help us. And they are also threats that we see coming up. And in particular, I think one of the 
threat we are seeing is the potential revision of the primary energy factor for grid electricity that is also being already announced in the strategy, in the sector um, integration strategy. Um, just for those who are not really familiar with the topic, um, the Commission has already lowered this primary energy factor. And the lower the factor, basically, in very, very basic terms, the less competitive the strict heating becomes as compared to electrification. And now we lowered this value from 2.5 to 2.1. And now we see that commission is likely to revise it downwards again. So I think there is a little knowledge and awareness on, on how it will concretely impact the feasibility of further development of district heating. And we need to be very active as a sector in order to raise awareness about that. And to answer the second point, what are the measures, the concrete measures we can come, we can take to counteract this discourse? I think it's um, just doing more of what we've been doing so far, meaning talking more about benefits of district heating as a as an integrator of a local energy vectors of local energy infrastructures um, as a, a sector that creates employment local employment um, that a sector that actually enables a local implementation of circular economy as well as a local implementation of an energy sector integration strategy. Uh, Camilla, thank you for thank you for raising that uh, the point about electrification because I probably I'm probably in the same situation as you. Some of the some of the points I read around um, electrification being a solution to everything I find quite painful. I find dis myself disagreeing with a lot of these points. I would really like to be proved wrong on this matter, but. I, I don't think that we're going to find ourselves in a situation in the future where, where re renewables, of course, renewables such as wind and solar, uh, they've made uh, tremendous gains, tremendous reductions in the cost of uh, manufacturing, installation, uh, operation. But I don't think that we're going to find ourselves in a situation where uh, we, as some people are predicting, where um, electricity is almost too, I've heard the term, too cheap to meter. And um, from, from what I've read of uh, history and my studies, people were saying the same things about, about the nuclear sector in some of the early days. In some of the language, in some of the conversations I have, I try to tout the role that district energy can be used as a form of smart electrification for the uh, district heating or for the heating sector for the solutions of the high, heavy reliance on fossil fuels in the heating sector. I, I mean, there's the possibility, of course, as I know, as we know, and we're going to discuss today, of utilizing uh, waste or surplus heat. And some of that waste or surplus heat is not at the right temperature to be used directly. So it needs to be upgraded with heat pumps. And this is an ex excellent example of a way that there is to use electricity in the sector, but to use it smartly and as efficiently as possible. Outside of our urban centers, of course, for single family homes and places where district energy networks aren't the right solution, 
a good solution there is heat pumps. And that's another uh, individual heat pumps there. And that's another good example of what I would call smart electrification. So that although we need to use some electricity in the heating sector, uh, this concept of direct electrification, that would have some serious uh, ramifications. There's a recent report by Auburn University, who was also involved in the Heat Roadmap Europe. So yes, Camila, we're coming back to that again and again. Um, this report found that in, in order to get to 50% of district heating by 2050, which they say is necessary to meet EU decarbonization goals, we would actually have to build more than 21,000 new district energy networks in Europe and a large amount of that before 2030. And accordingly, they say, we'd have to invest around 300 billion euros in district energy in the next 10 years. So as you are both from organizations that are investing in district energy, that are also, well, that have to take the decision if they invest in a certain project or not, what do you think, first of all, where will that money come from? And second, do we have today the right conditions in place, also from a policy point of view, to mobilize this money also from the private sector and direct the investments into the right projects? I think that we see with these gigantic amount of money needed um, that there is a huge challenge for the sector but there is also an opportunity. And as I mentioned before, this opportunity lies in the recovery plan. We have good um, signs that um, district heating will be supported through a just transitioned fund and through EU Invest Europe. That, that is one of the key potential source that could uh, spur this dynamic of investment in district heating. I think the second point that can, can unlock investment would be the European taxonomy. Um, truly need is to invest in district heating that it's not necessarily uh, that it's not necessarily efficient today, but thanks to investment can become efficient tomorrow. And a very good example of that is Poland. In Poland today, only 20% uh, of district heating is considered as efficient according to the definition uh, of efficient district heating in the Energy Efficiency Directive. The country decided in its national energy and climate plan that they want to achieve by 2030 80% of um, district heating that become efficient. But in order to do that, we actually need to make sure that financial flows flows will flow to um, those types of infrastructures in order to make them even more efficient, uh, even greener and using um, waste heat when, when it's possible. Um, money isn't an issue. The availability of money isn't an issue. It's more an issue of uh, investable projects. What do you think is the big challenge here? Why are there not more suitable projects? Is it a question of maybe your capacity or, or expertise on the, on the local level or what is it? It's probably a combination of all of the above. In many of the countries we work in, uh, we see that there are 
there are huge needs for investment in the sector to improve improve the efficiency and uh, bring it up to uh, the level that level that would enable um, these uh, renewable or waste heat solutions to be used. They're not just plug and play solutions. Um, you normally need to uh, make improvements to your network, already lower the temperatures, um, make some of the basic improvements in order to make use of these greener uh, heat sources. But it's a combination, I think, of where where systems are in uh, government ownership or local government ownership, uh, there's a lack of political will, uh, perhaps to upgrade or invest in those systems. There's also a lack of uh, capacity at the level. So we, I do meet a lot of um, uh, a lot of operators who, in countries where they have older systems, they are doing the best they can with the infrastructure that they have, but it's difficult enough for them to keep everything operating and reacting to problems as they come up, let alone thinking of how they can invest in their systems to for tomorrow and make them greener. So there's a, there's a whole combination of factors and I think a greater push from national governments to incorporate heating into their uh, green agendas and to allocate some funding or more expertise into this area would make a big difference in increasing the pipeline of investable projects. I would add to, to this puzzle, this complex equation of reasons why we might be lacking um, viable projects um, is maybe the, the absence of, uh, in many, many cases, um, practice of local energy planning. Um, district heating is a very specific solution. It's a, it's a local solution and its development and expansion and extension requires a very careful vision and strategy at a local level, both in terms of optimizing and energy use, um, in terms of thermal insulations of building, which enables extension of low temperature, district heating and also in terms of planification for the district heating itself for its conversion from coal to gas or to renewable sources or the use of um, waste heat. So when we don't have this systematic um, energy, local energy mapping planification, it, it becomes difficult to imagine viable projects, I would say. I'm, I almost don't dare to close the discussion because it's such a good conversation that we've going on, but we're running out of time. So the only thing that I would maybe ask you is if you have any recent success story of a district energy project that could only be implemented, so new network or modernization of a network, because there was the right instrument, a policy instrument or financial instrument. Another um, project I can highlight is a recent project that's that the bank signed a loan for that is under construction in Belgrade. It's a PPP type arrangement, a public-private partnership project, but even in this case it's still possible to um, uh, to harness grant funds or available funds uh, to support a project like this that has many green objectives. So in this project through our Taiwanese donor partners, because because the project meets a lot of good environmental criteria, uh, we were able to harness concessional finance 
for the project. So that means a po portion of the loan for this project is at a very, very low interest rate, uh, what's known as concessional finance. Hard to provide direct grants to private projects, but even in, even in the case of private projects where we think there is a good opportunity, we can still harness some funds from our generous donors. If we manage to have an instrument at the EU level that actually creates a level playing field between district heating and individual heating sources that oftentimes are inefficient, that would be one of the major, major um, favoring both legislative and financing factor that will enable us to um, invest even more in district heating. And the discussions about that have started. The U European Commission specified in the uh, sector integration strategy that this is necessary and it will happen either through the extension of the EU ETS or through the revision of the Energy tax Taxation Directive or both. And we need to find the best solution that will enable both investors to have right, right incentives to invest. And that will also enable individual heating users and consumers to go, go and make this transition from fossil fuels to low carbon solutions, and ideally also to connect district heating. So all in all, we are on a good way to develop more and more sustainable district energy. But what I hear from you is also that there's still plenty of things to do to improve the policy and financial framework to have better conditions for district energy. Thanks to both of you, Greg and Camilla, for joining this conversation. And of course, also thanks to everyone who's been listening to this podcast. This was the last episode of our five-episode podcast series, where we have covered five different topics around district energy and its role in the energy transition. If you want to learn more about any of those topics, you can follow the links in the episode description, or you can, of course, listen to the rest of the episodes of our Decarb Districts podcast if you haven't done that already.